Hello and welcome to Explorations on Feminist Leadership by One Future Fellows 2022, a podcast by the 2022 cohort of the One Future Fellows, where we discuss, examine, and learn about all things feminist leadership. Um, I am Sarika, and my pronouns are she and her. I am a psychologist and a strong advocate for mental health. Hi, my name is Jyotika Thomar. My pronouns are she and her. I am a second-year undergraduate student of history at Lady Shiram College for Women, um, University of Delhi. Hi, my name is Jasmine Kaur. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm currently working as a teaching fellow at Ashoka University at the Philosophy Department. And today we will be talking about accountability and correcting harm. So before we begin with the podcast, we would like to tell you about our rationale behind the choice of this theme. Um, we don't think it can be divorced from our political leanings, which includes, among other things, a commitment to anti-capitalist and anti-carceral politics, as well as a firm opposition to the various structures of oppression that shapes the politics. Uh, that shapes narratives around harm and danger and violence based on race caste class religion militarization citizenship and borders and we think it's important to talk about it because the occupations taken by the police military market state nexus don't serve the needs of the most vulnerable but in fact are enactors and causations of harm themselves in most cases um and we think that we need explorations on these issues from the perspective of feminist leadership to discover how we can build a freer world in opposition to the one that exists now and in furtherance and um translation of existing abolitionist thought and transformative uh, principles and traditions of transformative justice which is things that we want to get into during the course of this podcast um at this point i think it's important to give um you some trigger warnings so we'll be be discussing issues and themes of violence particularly sexual violence and oppression so we request you to be mindful of that while you're listening um i think over to you jasmine for us to get started hi i wanted us to start off with something ashan crawley a teacher writer and artist posted about inevitability of harm on his social media in june 2021 he writes harm happens we harm one another many think this saying harm happens and we harm one another to be a value statement and a moral judgment so instead of thinking about this fact we pretend we can be innocent and so too we value innocence as a moral and ethical good but my garden keeps teaching me my intent to grow more green beans was neither good nor bad but it appears i have planted too many in too small a space so though many are blooming lots of leaves are dying off and some of the plants too i have to remove the felled leaves daily it doesn't matter that my intent was to grow more food it actually might even be a noble desire it certainly was not bad or mean or evil but the impact is that the growth has still been harmful for some of the plants what would a claim of innocence i didn't mean to do it this isn't my fault maybe i can just keep watering and hoping and wishing even mean for the plants the garden shows me yet again that some concepts some ideas are deeply insufficient for trying to contend with our world 
All that matters is my attempt to repair the harm done. So instead of guilt and shame, which are the underside of and produced by desires for innocence, care, tenderness, handling things, literally putting my hands in the dirt, pruning, getting messy with my hands. And from this can emerge repair. From this can emerge joy. And from this can be, be sensed life and love. I wanted to share this because this is something that really challenged my perspective on associating guilt and shame with harm. And it really forced me to understand how inevitable harm is and how useless it is to think about notions of innocence instead of notions of repairing um, the harm that you have done. And I wanted to ask what you both think about this. So I think this excerpt was a very, very beautiful and evocative way to put a lot of our thoughts around this. Um, and I think I see it as a way in which um, we approach relationships with each other. And these can be various kinds. These could be, these could look like friendships. These could look like romantic relationships. These could look like parent-child relationships. And um, even though a lot of them may be based on principles of love and respect, justice and equality, I think there's a need to also look at, like um, the excerpt put it, the inevitability of harm, of us enacting harm on the other person and us also experiencing harm and sitting with the fact that it's a very uncomfortable place to be, but that un that discomfort is necessary. Um, and I think it's also important to look at not just the intention of the actions that we do, the things that we say in the context of these relationships, um, but also look at the consequences of whatever it is that we did, like divorcing it from what we intended to do. And that is where I think we can practice not associating guilt and and hurt with it, but looking at the consequences it had for the other person, especially when things are as contested as the identity or, um, you know, invasions of privacy or just things that we didn't mean to be hurtful, but did end up being hurtful um, and grappling with how we deal with that. Um, Sarika, what, what do you think of this? I think um, I really like the part where you talked about personal relationships, right? Because I think when we move away from uh, guilt and shame that comes with harm, it also means that we realize that we do hold power in different relationships. Um, for example, in the child-parent sort of relation that there is, punishment is something that's very, very common and it um, directly sort of associates like there's, there's zero tolerance to any sort of violence that happens, right? So it immediately sort of creates a binary. You're either wrong, you're either a perpetrator or you are a victim. And that's, I mean, is that helpful? There's strict imposition of punishments, but it also comes with really less exploration, really less reflection. Um, there are no alternatives to it. And that also means that there's very little accountability that we um, give 
to the behold to the perpetrator themselves right so um, how do we correct harm with alternative behaviors to ignorance or like how do we find an alternative that's not so much about ignorance where they just say i'm sorry and how do we more move more towards the actions part of it and i think also adding on to this is that especially as leaders in different sectors um how do we really hold ourselves accountable where even if we do um any sort of harm to anybody even if we have good intentions how do we repair that when is harm more of an initial response that we work towards and move away from in a way than um something that we sort of just say sorry and move on from right i think we do this by delinking harm from innocence and guilt by recognizing that even in our aim to do good we will end up causing harm and to understand that not as something to feel guilty and ashamed about but as something to repair but i am also wondering about how we think of harm at the social level what are the constructs that exist around it how do social systems respond to harm and how we have been socialized in such systems such that we also are and have been enactors and acceptors of this harm of these systems around harm i want to work here with the example of sexual assault when a woman is raped in india it is often construed as harm against a family rather than harm against a person and many of us have been socialized in this ideology and taught to think that a woman who has been raped has faced a fate worse than death we often accept this narrative even if we do not believe the victim herself how then do we contribute to the conceptions of harm when we do this what are some of the other ways in which we do contribute to uh, this conception of harm how how might we be able to mitigate this harm by changing our notions around sexual assault from the ones we have been socialized in to a notion where we center the person harmed and how they would like to deal with instead of imposing how we would like them to deal with it in other words how have we been trained to hold people accountable in these systems and how do we move out of that training um yeah what the very very important example that you brought up right now it makes me think of this book um on partition narratives like oral histories of partition survivors um written by urvashi butalia so it's called the other side of silence and one of the ideas that she discusses while talking about um particularly sexual violence enacted on women during the partition riots was how women's bodies were used as battlegrounds um for contesting groups of like contesting communities um and how they were the sites of violence that you know these communities used to enact violence against each other if that makes sense which makes us um which puts us in a position where we have to contest with the construction of narratives of harm of danger and of safety and um, so the one recurring narrative is that of stranger danger 
and that is essentially being told like young women and girls particularly being taught from a very young age that they need to be necessary like particularly careful of their safety when they leave um the home and they go outside um because of you know this like this construction of the dangerous stranger which um i will get into which will which is usually and structurally deployed against particularly men from marginalized communities and what also comes at this point is uh, the construction of a binary of the home being a space of safety and comfort and the outside of the public being a space of um potential harm and violence which is um an obfuscation of facts uh, because statistically every single year the national crime records bureau data tells us that in over 92 93% cases in cases of um sexual violence against women it is individuals known to the survivor who are the enactors of harm who are the perpetrators so how do we grapple with this idea of stranger danger right and also look at how the entire energy and resources and time of the state um and the military have been deployed to sort of um give shape and structure to these narratives um and i think that we, some clarity about that will come when we talk about the disproportionate incarceration of um persons from marginalized communities and i'll take two examples to discuss that so in the united states um it is the african american population along with um of course hispanic people and other communities which are disproportionately incarcerated and face the brunt of police and custodial violence and systematic targeting um so the african american population though it's only 13% of the total population of the country they make up 40% of the incarcerated population and when we talk about the indian context and look at under trials it is individuals from scheduled caste and tribe communities and from muslim and sikh communities who make up 70% of the under trial um population right which is disproportionate to the actual population demographic that they have so and a very very um important way of implicating them is through narratives of particularly sexual violence um and of course these have legal and political bases so um if you look at say for instance legislation like the criminal tribes act of 1871 a colonial era legislation um it sort of um designated certain communities as habitual offenders and even though in the context of post independent india that was um like the law isn't in force anymore but it it's not enough to say that it's simply because it's not in force anymore it doesn't have any um consequence because it's solidified through narratives and the way state and its institutions function so uh, the way particularly individuals from denotified tribes are um, you know targeted by the state now is because of the consequence of what this legislation did the designation of uh, habitual offenders and there are organizations that we link um in the resources that are working on these issues um which also makes us think about how the level to which violence 
has been normalized and simply because it is enacted by the state and its institutions it's not something that counts for a space of critique or you know questioning and it's just taken as um say the natural so if you look at um say sexual violence enacted by the military in um places where the armed forces special powers act is in um is uh, deployed um that won't you know that that won't be questioned to the extent to which um other cases of sexual violence will be and uh, to give you an, another example um of how even the category of the victim is created so there is a binary creation of the good victim and the bad victim and the good victim is something that um attracts a lot of public outcry there is mobilization and so on and um the other kind of victim is a space where that's not the response that we receive and um say for instance the priyanka reddy um gang rape case that happened in hyderabad in 2019 it was followed by what is referred to as an encounter right it's an ex- extrajudicial um killing of the accused and i remember being in a legal studies class and my teacher who was teaching me legal studies and ideas of political science tell us very jubilantly that you know an encounter happened and they were killed um and i did not have the vocabulary to really pinpoint why i felt uncomfortable about that but it points to the same thing that i've been talking about about the normalization of violence and how extremely punitive carceral um systems of punishment is the only thing people rally around right in when a, a case of sexual violence happens and uh, not only does that structurally not solve anything but it also um takes away the agency of the individuals who have gone through um the harm right um i i think i've been going on quite a bit so if there's anything that you want to say at this point or come in um please feel free to do that thank you so much for that jyotika i think that gives us a lot of context right of how it um how this is sort of enacted on a larger um ground like the large perspective of it and what i also understood of it is that um the power remains with the majority and is and and the definition of justice also comes through this majority and is sort of used against the minority a lot more and i think the main thing that we're also coming to is that the carceral systems really don't negate harm caused and it's not like the amount of harm caused in society is decreasing violence remains theft remains um everything remains so it's not particularly negating the harm then we also come to the next question which is then how do we transform the society and right now what factors in society take us away from accountability and what factors actually lead to justice at the grassroots i think jasmine also mentioned sort of giving the victim the power to decide how they'd like justice or how they'd like the harm to be corrected that would also be something that's very important here right how do we move away then from that 
punishment and sort of isolating the bad actions of one person to that one person only because what we're also understanding is that at the end of the day it's something that's been taught to us from the very beginning like we talked about personal relationships punishments has been a part of our personal relationships in school in college probably also in a parent child relationship i think that's what i've also understood from everything that shrutika has talked about jasmine do you want to add to this yes thank you again jyotika for giving us so much context i also want to add to this uh through so something that has really influenced my thought on this is this video uh, uh that is called what should happen to abusers if we do not lock them up and it is by kimberly foster on her channel for harriet and features professor lay goodmark and it is all about decriminalizing domestic violence and goes into the history of domestic violence and criminalizing it in the us but i think a lot of thought also applies elsewhere and in our context also because they are discussing this question of if we cannot lock the abusers up what what should we do because i think we can all agree that domestic abuse is this incredibly important issue against mostly women but also against people of other genders uh and it is heinous to have to be abused for any length of time and also especially in cases of domestic abuse the abuse lasts for a long time even a lifetime and we also know that not a lot of people even come forward with abuse cases so it is a very unaddressed problem but what really affected me in this conversation was the concept that a lot of times when we criminalize domestic abuse we are not addressing what is causing the abuse in the first place we are just saying oh you did this bad thing now you're going to going to go to jail forever and the person that you were in this relationship with is maybe partly responsible for that and also for from the victim we are asking that this person that you love and uh have other positive feelings about also is the one you have to put behind bars and that is a lot to ask from someone and it also talks about how there is correlation between um things like unemployment and poverty uh to domestic abuse that it is that there is no point if we just put people who are already hurting and people who might have been abused themselves as uh younger people to put them behind bars and to hurt them further instead of addressing a lot of material realities that are kind of pushing them towards hurting other people around them and i think trying to focus on this is something that really made a difference in how i think about this and also centering victims because a lot of victims do not exactly want the abuser to go to jail they want them to stop abusing that is the main thing and if not then 
maybe to get out of that relationship, but that is also limited. And what the understanding of Professor Leach, a good mark has been, is that a lot of victims, when they have this option that their abusers can be rehabilitated, will choose the rehabilitation over getting this carceral revenge or justice that we have been taught is the only thing we can be getting. Um, so that that is something that has, uh, th- that's what I think about this and uh, trying to move to restorative justice instead of this very casteral and very punitive justice. Right, so over here, I just want to talk about one thing I forgot to mention earlier which is about the traditions of abolitionist thought and uh, those prison reformers and prison abolitionists and what they think of the issues that we're talking about. So these are people who call for the complete dismantling of structures such as the prison, the police, the military, and so on. And they locate that political position that they take in a politics based on anti-capitalist and anti-carceral ideas. And they see these structures as violent entities, inherently violent entities constructed by oppression based on race, caste, class, religion, gender, sexuality, citizenship, militarization, and so on. And um, I got interested in these ideas during the 2020 protests against police brutality in the aftermath of the institutional murder uh, by the police of George Floyd. So um, the Prominent abolitionist thinkers are people like Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And what they say is that these institutions don't serve the needs of the most vulnerable, but what they do is they deploy their coercive force against them. And this takes several forms that we've discussed. So it looks like systematic targeting, surveillance, custodial torture and violence, creation of the narratives of criminality, of sexual violence, a dismissal of rule of law in the way in which the process takes shape and because of these reasons and their analysis of it and the looking um, of course this is situated in the American context so they do a lot of work on how the African-American community is targeted by um, these issues Um, and they say that these institutions will not help us solve crime and must be done away with and the alternative they offer is things that look like material and structural changes and that comes from a socialist perspective. So they talk about um, building communities of care and support. They talk about the state funding of education, of healthcare, better working conditions. And they say that crime is caused in the absence of all of these things. Um, And that is where we should divert our attention, resources and time instead of, you know, furthering the punitive and carceral response. Um, and they also talk a lot about restorative and transformative justice, which um, over to you, Sarika, for introducing us to that. Thank you for that, Jyotika. So I think in terms of restorative justice, right, um, I, as a psychologist, I am very used to sort of looking up different researches and different studies that have been done. And this is something I was honestly really interested in because I really wanted to know how do we implement it right because I'm going to say it's easier said than done when it comes to this because it's something that has to change at the very grassroots of society so I actually looked up this um, study that was done in Florida 
2020, in 2020, um, where they implemented restorative justice in a middle school. And I think that gave me a really good idea of how it could be something that is put forward and acted on and from there on, right? So it was basically six to eight grade students who were, um, they sort of changed their model of justice. There were no punishments. If there was any sort of problem that came up, any sort of conflict that came up, they were asked to write letters to each other. And I think, Jyotika, what you talked about in terms of community building in order to get justice in order to correct harm was something that they used a lot over here. And I think that was something that really changed my mind on how it is something that can be implemented, right? So that's one. But again, at I'm going to say at the, at the roots of it, restorative justice also comes down to why education is important, why economic stability is important. Having a community around that's supportive becomes very, very important in this case. Because when we see the principles of restorative justice, there's a lot of what, like a feeling of safety is something that's very important. Having stuff that's accessible is very important. Respect is important. And these are things that we also learn when we are children to sort of avoid any bias, uh, to be more neutral. And also just having that accessibility of people around who would understand and support you in that space, right? And also hold you accountable more than anything else. Um, I think that is something that is very important. I think we can wrap this up and uh, we can do that by maybe sharing one thing we have learned in this podcast episode. I can begin. I learned that that to reduce people to good and evil is very reductive and harmful, that it does very little to repair the harm caused, if it does anything at all. And rather, I think it tends to increase the harm in the world, uh, that our focus has to be step out stepping out of our preoccupation with being innocent and working on repair and to centering people who have been harmed rather than punishing people who have done the harm, who might have been harmed themselves in the past or even in the present and to just center repair and care instead of punishing. Um, Thank you so much for this very, very reflective conversation. And um, even though we had some pointers prepared earlier of what we wanted to discuss, all of the pauses and reflections we took in while we were talking is testament to how much um, we really learned from this activity. And I think my takeaway from this would be how important it is for us to value complexity and nuance when we approach these conversations, be it at the personal level, when we um, sit in a position where we confront the reality that we might just be, you know, enactors of harm ourselves. And it is important to be held accountable for that and sit with that discomfort. Um, And also at the public level, um, where we must create spaces where we approach these conversations with a lot more nuance um, than we do as of now, because the position we are right now, because it doesn't approach these conversations in that way, 
all it does, like you said, Jasmine, is further the kind of violence that we already have prevailing. And um, it's important for us to have reimaginations of our responses. Um, so that would be what I took away from this. Thank you so much, Jyotika and Jasmine. I think this was actually a very reflective uh, discussion. And uh, like you said, Jyotika, I've also been reflecting a lot more personally on this uh, topic, right? And even in the context of um, feminist leadership, I mean, it's something that we have to sort of constantly strengthen and work towards in order to be accountable, in order to be kind and empathetic and build that community for people and for each other. Um, it's almost like a muscle that we have to keep sort of strengthening over time, right? To be kind, to be empathetic. And it's not something that comes easily. There's a lot of unlearning that sort of goes into it. Um, but yeah, I think that's what I'm taking with me. There are still a lot of questions that would need more objective sort of answers. But this is a start. And I really like this start. So yeah. Yeah, you put that really well. It's a starting point for questions and we don't have all the answers, but I think that's the point. I think so too. I also really like the start and thank you both for giving uh, such a good reflective conversation. And I think it's a good place to begin. To our listeners, thank you so much for joining us and listening in. We really, really appreciate your support. If you like this episode, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at One Future Collective and One Future underscore India on Twitter. And keep an eye out for future episodes of Explorations on Feminist Leadership by One Future Fellows 2022. Please leave in your uh, questions, comments or feedback for us on Anchor or in our DMs. We really look forward to hearing your thoughts. And until next time, take care of yourself and we hope that we can explore more together. Have a good day. Like this Sochcast? Tune in for more with the Sochcast app from the Google Play Store.